We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You are listening to Now That's What I Call Science, the weekly science radio show that is brought to you by Edge Radio 99.3 FM and goes out to you on all major podcast networks. Now, as you know, we unpack a new science or technology topic each week and we are absolutely thrilled this week to be featuring some local tech wonders um, and showcasing what's happening right here on Hobart's doorstep because we've been really a little bit slack, I would say, with our tech representation. We've only had tech for health so far, so it's great and I'm really, really excited to have a special guest here with us while we record this week's show. Hello, Tanya. How's it going? It's great, thanks, and thanks for inviting me. I'm really excited to be able to um, talk about one of my great loves here in Hobart. That's <laughs> awesome, and also welcoming co-host Anna. How's it going, Anna? Hello, good. Thanks for having me back. <laughs> <laughs> Always. So um, let's do a little bit of background, because both of you are actually women in the tech space. Um, so if we go first to special guest Tanya, just uh, could you introduce yourself for our listeners and maybe a bit about your background? Yeah, certainly. Um, I'm... Dr. Tanya McLaughlin Fruit, um, and um, a few years ago I finished a PhD on platypuses uh, through Sydney University, um, and then uh, I worked um, at the Bureau of Meteorology in their water section, because we oh. used this water link and so on, and we moved to Hobart, um, and that was how I got to know um, a fellow who was involved in the Hobart hackerspace, which is what we're here to talk about tonight. Um, and um, I became very sort of closely involved in this um, amazing community of, you know, sort of geeks and tech technophiles. Um, So where do you come originally, Tanya? um, I I was actually born in the United States. Really? Yeah, but arrived um, when I was 11, so I've gone wonky Mm -hmm. these days, Um, um, (laughs) but mostly sort of Melbourne, but I did, like I said, I've lived in Canberra and Sydney and, and now here in Hobart. All over. Basically. Southeastern seaboard, I suppose. Yeah. And what brought you to Hobart? Um, just uh, my my then husband's uh, work. Yeah. So yeah. Um, but I could, I was already working at the Bureau of Meteorology, so I could t- sort of transfer my my role over. Nice. That's so, handy. Yeah. 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 And then you would you say that you've kind of always been inquisitive? Because it sounds like you've done a lot of migrating across fields there and found your way into. Um, hacky space. Yeah, I um I've always been interested in um it, it must have been one of those really really annoying kids who were going but why but why but why. Yeah. I'm like that now <laughs> yes. when I'm not a child yes. I can't get away with it anymore. I'm not cute. <laughs> so, I know that's the thing. I mean you've got to be cuteness, but it, but you still have that that curiosity and and that drive to to work out um at least for me how, how do systems work and that's what sort of drove me in the the ecological field was was how do these interactions work um and um and even in this sort of technical space i'm certainly not um a real tech person or not compared to some of these these hackers in hacker space um but it's it's been that sort of interest in um how networks work how people learn how people interact um how children learn and um just that that real sort of joy and delight in um in discovery really yes yeah Yeah, that's what i really love about tech as well and i think a lot of people are really quick to say oh i don't work in tech um 
but actually it's a huge part of nearly all of our work now. Mm, um, yeah, even I always joke because my PhD actually centered around an app development. I didn't write the app myself, so I had to work really, really closely with um, a developer. And I always joke that I couldn't even uh, hook up a second monitor when I first arrived to start my PhD. And by the end, I could, you know, talk you through all the different aspects of our um, code and why it was that way and what way our data was handled. And it's a really engaging atmosphere to be in because uh, it just reignites that passion to understand really how everything's working. Um, because tech is so ubiquitous in, in our society now. So Anna, you're also in tech, but you're also yeah. a really keen advocate. So tell us a little bit about yeah. your passion for tech. Well, it's it's funny as well because I didn't start in tech. It was never anything that I ever did through school or had much interest in. Um, I was always more into fine arts and I started my career at uni doing fine arts. Um, I was just struggling and going through that process and being like, I just want a job. I'm going to end this and not have a job. So... Um, I was like, you know what, I'll just give it a take open day. I went and went to hospitality management or something like that. That's what I was working in at the time. They had a tech open day. They sort of dragged me in and was so enthusiastic that a woman came into the classroom. And, oh, my God, you'd have such a good career if you do IT. And I was like, look, it's, it's six months. It's not going to hurt to do a Cert 3. I still did my Cert 3. I did my Cert 4. I ended up doing a traineeship. Um, when I was working in a school and in a school environment, I just loved it. I ended up um, doing so many different things there. Uh, I was IT technician. I was also um, teaching in a digital design class. Um, I was also working in the media space. I was also um, working in the art faculty there. I was doing so many different things. Um, and then I moved on from there into my uh, current digital support roles so doing more UX design and um, UX design being user-based yeah, design sorry, user it? experience design yeah. yeah so looking at how people interact with technology and use it and still in the um, educational technology field I suppose um, it's sort of when you start working in tech you just you begin to understand how much it is whereas yeah. before it was like oh it's just computers and it's like no it's it's design and it's Networking. It's really funny, yeah. Because yeah. I've I've so many friends who work in tech now, and actually, mm. when I look back on it, they're the really creative types from school. Mm. Like they're the girls that were really really into. One of them was really really into English. The other one was really artistic, and she's now gone on to um go into computer game design mm. because it really draws on those creative skills for character development or that user based design where you're really thinking about their experience and how they interact with it, and how emotive different things are as you work through it. And I, what I would say to people is, because that's what I love about the little bit of tech that I have experienced with, yeah. um, was that it was all about the person sitting in front of the screen or that was interacting with it. And I think that's something that we don't really think about as a stereotypical pathway into being in a tech career. Mm. Mm. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of the, um, the tech, I think, is even the format of the, of the screen actually comes from our understanding of... Um, human biology and human behavior and so it's this sort of horizon effect that we look at because we don't look up and down at, at least in western in western culture and so you still have that sort of these biases that go in there about the user user mm. design because we understand our, our cultural psychology yeah um, yeah that's fascinating so what mm. is hackerspace oh hackers well a hackerspace is um, uh, um it's actually a physical space because of course you can go on the internet and have chat forums and all these sorts of things 
Um, but this is actually a physical space where people get together and um, and uh, collaborate or work independently on projects um, generally involved with tech, but there's a lot of overlap with, with um, fine arts or arts, maybe not fine arts, but contemporary arts. Um, and we have a few members who, who are into art, and I've finished a Bachelor of Fine Arts oh, <laughs> as well, so yeah. I have that background in science and art. Um, and, um, yeah, they, they often... Um, they also go by the name of sort of maker spaces or um, fab labs, fabrication labs, um, hack spaces. There's a whole suite of, of terms that will cover that um, sort of uh, the idea of a, a, a group of like-minded people who will work together towards something. And it's often, um, back in the day, they used to be things like tool libraries, mm. um, a simple little tool library, and then they've become, they've evolved into these much more sort of um, well um, well uh, equipped. Um, yeah, resources. I remember one of the guys um, saying to me that it started as a toolkit and they never even shared a tool. <laughs> That's <laughs> probably true. Yeah. I know they used to meet in a pub. I wasn't there. I, I joined, I think, about a year after they'd, um, mm. they'd sort of been incorporated. Um, but yeah, they used to meet in a pub and I think one of them got a 3D printer and they'd have these little sort of displays of, of the 3D printer printer in the pub <laughs> mm. um, and talk about these you know and dream about having a physical space to actually for everyone to come and get to so it was kind of like the science in the pub meetings before mm -hmm. they were really happening down here so did it come from it being um like a, there's a hack for that boy so i've just been looking up in the urban dictionary i looked up what what is a hack definition and it came up with a you know to saw or to <laughs> cut something violently and i was like no i'm looking for the urban one and it's really quite rooted in computer programming still which mm. is probably what we were just talking about about those stereotypes coming over but one that i do like is to jewelry rig or improvise something inelegant but effective usually as a temporary solution to a problem um. that is absolutely the, the, the hacker ethos um, and, and most people when they think about hackers of course they think about the, the negative um, connotations or the people who are, who are trying to scam the people who are trying to crack code um, to be able to you know to go on the internet or to the internet or russian hackers and you know this sort of thing but but it's actually become um, commonplace a, a common term for um Again, that sort of reuse and repurposing of items, and not always the most elegant thing. I mean, just look at YouTube, for instance, DIY mm. and whatnot. I mean, it's some of the most hilarious. Yeah, well, you almost always hear now, mm. you know, oh, there's a hack for that. Um, mm. It's just a really common thing, and it's almost a really uh, popular thread, isn't it? Like life hacks and all this kind of stuff. But really, it comes because you'll have now. Um, it's different to a game jam, but it's the same kind of thing where you get a group of people that are really like-minded together and you say okay this is the tools that you have available put something together um mm. and it's really all about teamwork using each other's skills and it's really quite a sociable activity to do so uh, we're going to get in through the format of our show into what hackerspace hobart is all about um how you can become a member and what kind of benefits there are for a membership um and really just some stories about what that space is providing for the community We'll leave it there for now, um, and I hope that you are enjoying our show. Um, it's definitely got my uh, imagination going, running wild, um, and I hope you join us for the next episode. Welcome back. You're listening to Now That's What I Call Science. We're chatting today about the Hobart Hackerspace. We have got... Tanya here with us today, as well as Nee. Hello. 
Hello. Hello. Um, and we're just going to jump straight into a clip here um, that I recorded while I was down at the hackerspace uh, with the men down there. One of the things that I did a year or two ago was a community leadership program. And the other people that were on it were from places like Vinnie's and all sorts of other community organisations. And they thought it was a huge joke that we should have a, a social club for introverts. But that's basically what we've become, so... You know, it works. <laughs> Some are more introverted than others, yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But men's shirts go back a long way. They've, they're now an international thing, but they started out in Australia um, as a men's health thing, uh, specifically originally to counter the kind of men don't talk about health thing. Um, but men working side by side will communicate um, and it'll break down their inhibitions about talking about things where if you put them face to face, they don't talk about it. That was the kind of the background. Um, and it's grown from there, but it's grown outside of just pure men stuff as well, um, on the recognition that we are all people um, of various natures and capabilities. And this particular men's shed, uh, as Shane alluded to, uh, we've, um, we get, the nature of technology is that um, Many of the more geeky people are also somewhere on the um, autism spectrum. And so we get people who are introverted and people who have trouble communicating and all that sort of stuff. And they come along and sometimes they work very quietly there and other times they'll sit and participate. And they come out of their shell. It's wonderful to watch. And it, it echoes a lot more into other parts of their lives. So we've had people who've come in and completely unable to communicate with other people sitting at the same table and then by the end of it they've gone out and started their own businesses and are thriving so very very pleased to be a part of that not saying we're completely you know come and see us we'll we'll fix everything but to see people grow and to be a part of that growth is just fantastic and the confidence of realizing that there are other people uh, who are very similar to to you and and the confidence of realising that other people respect your abilities, your technical abilities, um, that really helps uh, helps people uh, realise their potential. Um, and, and simultaneously, they grow in a, in a technical and professional level. So we, we share ideas amongst one another, we kick around things, we um, conduct um, physical and pretend experiments, and um, we all uh, gain from it. And so our association with the Men's Shed uh, originally was uh, to gain access to their favourable insurance. But what we've found uh, is uh, that they've, uh, they've opened their doors to having female members. It's no longer an exclusively men's group. Uh, and our group is, is very, very inclusive. Um, uh, we, we welcome anyone um, and, and, and people are made to feel very welcome. Uh, we've had uh, people... Uh, as I already mentioned, on the autism spectrum, people on the gender spectrum, the sexuality spectrum, uh, at all points, it's everyone's welcome here. Alrighty, so we just heard a little bit there about how inclusive the local Hobart hackers space is. So, Anna, who are we hearing from there? Probably going to pronounce their names wrong, so Tony can probably help me out. All right. <laughs> uh, so we had Shane Dalglish yeah. on there. Uh, so he's uh, one of the founding members of the Hobart Hackerspace. Um, he's just moved back to Hobart recently. He runs his own IT company. 
Uh, we also had Brian uh, Marriott, who's now a retiree, but he's worked in Hobart and technology for over 40 years before that. And we also had David Craig, who was another one of the Hackerspace founders. Um, he currently works, this is his own description, he currently works for the government in technology and for relaxation he goes to Hackerspace and he plays with technology. Nice. Yeah. Just reads it from the sounds of it. Yeah. Oh, he certainly does. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. Um, that was just a really lovely clip to essentially, well, I think it's, I'm going to sound like such a stereotype or something but it's very rare that you would have a clip of all men talking about the importance of inclusivity Mm. of gender and sexual diversity and the strength that that brings to a group and I think that's more of an openness thing rather than a they don't think it but when I listened to those clips that Anna had I was like that's really wonderful to Mm. hear you know men openly saying that this really enriches their environment and their community and that they've really pushed to make sure that it's inclusive and that you know the the community is strengthened for it mm. it's yeah it's um it's been a um incredibly welcoming place for m- me um and always you know we are always encouraging more women to come along mm. um because of that that idea of diversity and and, and also just the, the the fact that hackerspace is actually open to all kinds of ideas about making, whether it's, um, you know, we have, we have knitting needles there and, and balls of wool if, if it so takes somebody's fancy. And for a while there we had a, um, a young man who was very keen on knitting and used to come to meetings and, and mm. just quietly knit while, while things were going on. Um, and so it's, yeah, so it's just, um, yeah, it's just, just a really, I just find it a really inclusive <laughs> place. We also have children. Yeah, we have kids coming along um, oh, really? to do the robotics, and, and we have a um, regular robotics class. Um, and I've um, done a lot of um, sort of STEM art type workshops, um, at both in in house and also externally in in other organisations as as a representative of um, hackerspace. Um, and so teaching things like you know how to make slime. And um, I, you know, because it's like kids love it, so so we're doing galaxy slime. So of course, I'll teach them about the various kinds of galaxies there are while they're getting their hands really grubby, just playing with with you know borax and PVA glue. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's fascinating. So I'm trying to get a picture in my mind of how the space works. So is it that there's some structured classes that are delivered? Is it a volunteer-run organisation? Do you can you just drop in at open nights? Well, it's, so it, it's completely run by volunteers. There are no paid positions there. Wouldn't that be lovely? Yeah. Um, <laughs> but um, we have a, um, a membership. Uh, we have an open night on um, Thursday nights um, and around um, 6.30 onwards, um, 6.30 p.m. Um, and we, we do have membership, which gives you 24-hour access and access to all the well, the the laser cutter, the um, the 3D printers, the CNCs, the various. We have welding, we have plasma cutter, um, so some pretty hardcore technical um, equipment, um, as well as just the uh, Arduino's, which are your small um, programmable um, computer, um, com- yeah, controllers and so on. Yeah. Um, and so we have a, a lot of that sort of um, technology. We have. Um, 
kind of an office space as well as electronic work benches. Um, and Sounds oh, really well equipped. It is. Yeah. yeah. So is it mostly equipped by donations or grants or how do a, you guys survive? A bit of both. A bit of both. Well, we, we survive on the smell of an oily rag, I like <laughs> to say. Um, but uh, Or maybe it's a lint-free cloth when it comes to electronics. <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyway, um, we, um, yeah, we have... Um, we've run, we've held Bunnings barbecues and things like that to just get some sort of basic funds in. We also sell chocolates to get some of that basic funds. But I've also been um, um, very grateful to have um, applied for some um, grants through uh, both the Tasmanian Men's Shed Association, who've been incredibly generous, um, and also through other sort of small organisations um, to bring money into the place. Um, and equipment. A lot of that, that more expensive equipment has come from there, but a lot of it is donations. Mm. Um, people love what we're doing, and so they bring in their um, um, outdated equipment, and um, we do that. But we also like manufacture things. You know, people they are so cluey that they, you know, they just oh, well, let's make a CNC, and they will make a CNC platform, get a router, and and rig the whole thing up, and have a computer control. So sorry, a CNC is a computer controlled router, basically. So it'll um. um Use a like a like a drill bit to to um, to cut out the images, but if you um, hook it up with the um, um, with a digital interface computer, then you can run these with the, with the right software, so that you're actually getting very precise uh, movements of that router bit. Um, well, it sounds like there's a wealth of experience to be had mm -hmm. there and a wealth of knowledge just sitting there. So on Thursdays at six thirty mm -hmm. p.m., it's a drop-in. Anybody can go and whet their appetite should they want to um, to try out a bit of tech. So in the next section, we're going to get to know some of the committee members and really the fantastic volunteers that are making this service a reality. listening to now that's what i call science and we are unpacking hobart's hackerspace so we're getting into the local community um program that essentially offers a drop-in or membership type approach to engaging with tech building stuff and just having a really really good time and making some really nice connections mm. and we're about to talk about really the people that bring this to life and make this community what it is um, sound extremely generous with their time and their experience. <laughs> so, Anna, you were down there last Thursday. Yeah. Who did you meet and oh, what well. did you see? <laughs> I think there were about 10 people when I went down there. Apparently that's quite small for what it normally is. It was a very rainy night. Um, I think the thing that was so interesting is I'd heard about it before and you sort of get this idea in your head of what it might be like and going into it I was just really surprised at how friendly and open and, and lovely everyone was that I met there and just the wide range of what's available there in terms of people's experience what you can learn to do I feel like you're only really limited by your imagination when you go in and away very much so yeah mm -hmm. absolutely it was it's just incredible the amount of um knowledge and experience so many of the members have there um, one of the uh, men that I met that night, his name was Ad Brian, and he worked for um, 40 years, he's retired now in technology, 
and we've seen a lot in 40 years in yeah the well the, the funny thing was is that um and i've got a clip from him where he's going to talk about it he had a machine uh called a pdp8 which was one of the first uh, machines at the university i believe um it's the first thing that he wrote a program for and he managed to get a hold of it so this is a clip of him just chatting about that machine yeah, it was purchased by the University of Tasmania in 1972. And as it happened, I was a student there at that time. It was the first machine I ever wrote a program on. They disposed of it after about 10 years of useful life. Um, it kicked around the education department for a while, and eventually someone phoned me up while I was still working at the uni and said, do you know anybody who wants a PDB-8? And I said, I know someone who can house one, and I'm still housing it. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, there's, it's a, there are actually two of it, two, two machines. Mm -hmm. One of them I've got completely in bits at the moment and progressively, very, very slowly refurbishing with the hope that it'll work again and run programs. But at the moment, it's a, a pile of ancient bits. This machine is, is a very, very primitive computer. It's got about the power of a wristwatch. Uh, and I'm talking before the days of Apple Watches. <laughs> so very... Um, in, in numbers, it's, it's got um, 4K of 12-bit words, so that's about 6K, of, 6K bytes of memory. Very, very small and very slow. Um, but it's a, it's a computer and it's representative of its time, so it's, to me it's a museum piece rather than a functional machine. Well, that was um, Brian Merritt talking about the PDP-8 that he uh, kind of inherited, the sort of first as you said, the first machine that he coded. Um, and, of course, it's it doesn't have a computer screen. It's this massive thing. Um, How big are we talking? Like the oh, size of a car? Well, no, not not, not that massive. Um, it's sort of like a... About a as long as a car. Yeah, maybe, but it's, it's, it's tall like a wardrobe. Okay. Um, and so you would have had a bank of these things going yeah. along. Um, and um, it doesn't have a computer screen... Um, it just runs through, yeah, yeah, basically very, very simple code. Um, but what I, what I particularly like about it is that it's um, it's very nineteen seventies. Mm. It's orange. Um, it's got this very brown. yeah, <laughs> orange, yellow, brown. You know those sort of you know kitchen colours, or yeah, the laminex yeah. bench tops. It's that sort of look, and um, and the font in the writing on it is um, something that you might have seen. Um, in um, 2001, A Space Oddity. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, it's Big a marvellous machine. Red buttons. So. It's beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> but the, uh, that's just, Brian's project there is sort of just one of the many different kinds of projects we have because we go from, from this sort of um, vintage or retro tech um, through to some really cutting edge stuff um, uh, with sensors and so on um, and a bit of miniaturisation. Um, but also at, um, at one point, uh, Shane Dalgleish and I decided that... Um, we just, I don't know why it occurred to us, but we just thought, hey, the Romans used to make glass. You know, if the Romans could do it, we can do it. <laughs> um, and so we just, uh, we did a bit of research and went back to sort of first principles. And um, I'd got a hold of a, um, a microwave kiln, which is basically a, um, an insulated container that has a, a coating on the inside that's uh, called an interceptor that catches the microwaves and actually it can heat up enormously inside and it will melt glass. Um, and so it's used for making jewellery and pendants, that sort of thing, just melting, um, fusing glass together. Um, and you can buy these sorts of things online, but I just decided, hey, let's make some glass. 
Um, and so we looked up, you know, where's where's the right kind of sand, the silica sand, seven mile beach, really? not far, <laughs> pick some up. Um, and um, and then you must you have to add a flux to it so that it reduces the melting temperature so the glass will fuse. And, um, you know, again, you go online, you look these things up, and um, washing soda, if you bake it in the oven, becomes the right um, um, form of uh, sodium and carbonate. Um, and so we just threw these things together and just blasted the heck out of it in this microwave <laughs> kiln. And we made glass. It was not pretty glass, <laughs> but it was glass. We were so excited. You know, it, was, it went up to um, over 1,000 degrees. Yeah, wow. Mm. That's fascinating. So this must be like some mm. sort of, I'm imagining a bowl mm. that has an insulated layer. I've got photos. Yeah. We'll put it on the website later. Okay. <laughs> we're going to put this up as a Facebook post yep. or on yep. social media platform mm. of what um, visually we mean by <laughs> a microwave kiln. Yeah, I think microwaves are so interesting because um, as we've been learning more through your act throughout the show about the electromagnetic spectrum and the uses of all these different waves that are naked to our eyes, but obviously we're interacting with them in many different ways throughout the day, just kind of fascinates me. And I suppose it's that whole thing that you were talking about earlier, Tanya, of just thinking about how the things work. And uh, recently, like I've always been pretty inquisitive, particularly about methods and how things work, but. Um, even more so lately because of the show, I'm even more inquisitive. And recently I was like, oh, this is going to sound gross. But I've got ants at my house and there are ants alive in my microwave, even though I had heated stuff up. And I was like, how? But again, I'm digressing. And this is a big tangent. <laughs> <laughs> I, so, oh, you go. Oh, no, I was going to say, I do pottery myself. When I, mm. And you see these things and just see a world of possibilities where you're like, oh, what if I did this? What was it? I remember asking Shane, what are you putting? Yeah, we've got earthenware. We're going to be doing that next. And... It's just amazing the kind of things you can do when you know how. Yeah, and actually sort of that whole idea of sort of going back to first principles, but with tech. Yeah. Um, just like a 3D printer is, you know, I, I generally try to describe it to people as, as, well, it's like icing cake with a piping bag. And that's basically what it is. It's something that squirts out a, a liquid thing in whatever format, computer-driven, um, and it and it builds up like it sets unlike icing you don't have to wait too long generally um, and so it can build up uh, these three-dimensional structures um, and so to sort of think about things in, in those first principles um, and be able to extrapolate and use the technology is is somewhere where there's a, a great strength and you see a lot of that um, with YouTube videos you know like if you google microwave kiln DIY microwave microwaves or something like that you will get all sorts of things on on um, the internet where people are they're sharing that it's and, and it's what I call it this sort of democratization of knowledge. People love to share knowledge. Yeah, and I think what's really important about that kind of democratizing of knowledge is um, that it's really accessible regardless of your level of education. And I think that that's a really important point because a lot of people think, oh, well, I couldn't do that because I don't know anything about technology or I don't know how to use a Raspberry Pi or I haven't gone to university. But I think that that's actually the opposite of the case because once everything's stripped back to those first principles, you know, it's really anybody's game and all of it's off the, it's, it's all cards are off the table. Yeah, I, I think you're right there. And, and it's, um, it's that um, idea that... Um, yeah, the sharing of information um, and that, that sort of um, engaging with, with an audience, whether the audience is 
actually there in reality because I run workshops for, for kids, often these sort of science art workshops, um, or whether that audience is through, through an interface, like even radio. It's, it's this sharing of ideas that's so important. Yeah, definitely. So that's a great place for us to leave it there for our third segment. And we will be wrapping everything up in the next segment and talking a bit more just about this unique space that's right here in Hobart on our doorstep and the possibilities of going and uh, trying to tap a few things. to now that's what I call science and we're talking about Hobart hackers space but what we were just talking about in the last section was essentially this like democratization of knowledge I find it really difficult to say that word <laughs> but I love the concept <laughs> um, and what I really think is beautiful is you know the accessibility affordability of this knowledge sharing that is just rife on the internet um, but particularly we're going to hear about how accessibility is just enriching people's engagement with, with tech? I think one of the big things at the moment with the area we're in is the affordability of being able to get into this area now. Uh, previously, you know, even mucking around with the computer and that, was ex they're expensive. And I mean, they're still reasonably expensive now. But with the fact you can go and buy like a Raspberry Pi, little single board computer, single chip computer for like 80 bucks, or an Arduino microcontroller for like five or six dollars, and then your sensors for a couple of dollars each. You know, parents can help get their kids into this technology now really, really, really cheaply. And the younger you start learning, the better chance you have. And you know, there's nothing stopping high schools or high school kids and the parents helping them and getting all of access to all of this now, which God, when I was a teenager, no chance. But and now, and if you're really on a budget, an ESP chip costs under five dollars, and we can teach you how to program them here. Yeah, and we're we're not afraid <coughs> to have a go at different things. And uh, as my son turned up this morning, he said, "Every machine's a smoke machine if you drive it hard enough." <laughs> <laughs> we're not afraid to make a bit of smoke. Yeah, and. I don't think there's anything that we wouldn't have a go at trying to do. Um, oh, 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 there was a guy that came in and wanted to talk about rockets and certain people wanted him to build a radioactive rocket and launch it at my place and I said no. It's funny that he uh, he's mentioned the uh, the rockets there because um, there's all sorts of recipes online which I, I think it might be illegal for um, what's called rocket candy. You can go and look that up if you want. Oh, dear <laughs> <God>. <laughs> that sounds ominous. Yeah, so, a bit explosive. <laughs> I think the resounding message that's coming through from these clips that we have is one of just inclusivity and accessibility. And what I, I just find it really um, inspiring. For, like It's a real grassroots community project that really seems to welcome all comers. And I really like that kind of like 
oh, Scott Morrison would love this, have a go type <laughs> of attitude. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they'll, um, good shout out to ScoMo there. Yes. Sure, he's listening in every week. Um, <laughs> he's welcome. <laughs> but, you know, it really is this whole muck in and give it a try. And it's absolutely right what they were saying about the um, affordability aspect. I've heard mm. some really lovely stories about um, one of the local researchers at Menzies in the School of Medicine Rosie Nash, she does um, health literacy for kids. And one of the schools decided to make their own Fitbits with basic technology to kind of mar- marry up those two uh, themes of like, yes, learning tech and coding, but also mm. then learning health principles and how they could actually marry the two up together, mm. which is just, it was affordable, it was cheap, it was engaging. Mm. And, you mm. know, what a great way for us to be encouraging the next generation to really think outside the box. Yeah, it's not just about um, getting something off the shelf and expecting it to, to function. It is this, this, yeah, going back back to those sort of first principles and understanding that, well, what is it about a Fitbit that makes it a Fitbit? Yeah. You know, we have accelerometers in our phones, but we don't think about them. You know, we shake them to change a page or something, and it's just we don't think about what's driving that, whereas really it's just a simple um, um, component that you can buy online very cheaply. You can just go to eBay and you know, order these things and, and you can find the plans online and you can build them and, and a, a place like Hackerspace means that you can you don't even have to buy your own um, soldering irons and so on. You've got this access to these fantastic workbenches as well as people who are incredibly proficient in in something as simple as soldering. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it sounds awesome. Uh, it just makes my brain kind of go. So I do blood pressure research is like my actual PhD area. And we've recently been, you know, buying Raspberry Pis and Arduinos and stuff to really try and hack blood pressure monitors. Mm. Um, and it's just really, it, it's what we were saying earlier, it's just like your imagination is your limiting factor here. Um, oh, so what <laughs> would you say is one of the wackiest kind of uh, oh. or out there projects that have come through? Well, there's a, um, we did have a, um, a few guys who turned up with, um, and that they're uh, self-professed uh, paranormal investigators. They're Hobart's Ghostbusters, are they? Yeah, I think they are, <laughs> kind of like the Ghostbusters, yeah. Um, we have so many old buildings here, and just about anywhere you walk, you're going to be walking over somebody's gravestone. Um, and so there's, you know, this incredibly sort of dense history of, well, misery, really, <laughs> you know, <laughs> convict colony, you know, you're going to get that. Um and so these, these guys um, are really, um, they, they went to Festival of Bright Ideas and, and got, um, got sort of clued up that, oh, well, maybe this is a place where we can get some, get some work done, um, get some help with things and so on. And, um, and they're invited in. And, and most of us are actually fairly sceptical about this sort of thing. It's just like, ghosts, really? But it's more about that, the idea of um, inviting um, that inquiry and, and that do-it-yourself um, approach um, and um, yeah and so they made these these things where they got the plans offline or, or the um, I wasn't sure whether it was a kit or not um, and managed to construct what to them made them very happy because maybe they were detecting ghosts. <laughs> That's awesome. Do we have a clip from that that we mm. want to play yeah. there? They are paranormal investigators. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell me about those? So again this is another phobie um, pick up. It's one of the reasons we like phobies. We just get to meet so many interesting people that probably wouldn't ever get a chance to come out here and last year we had um, some helpers who were in a school group that were actually um, paranormal investigators and they got talking to us and I was like oh, oh 
could you guys like make us some equipment because the, the equipment they use is fairly technical and specific for what they're doing and fairly expensive um so we said yeah well we won't build anything for you but you guys come along here we'll teach you how to build it yourself and then for the next couple of months they were here nearly every yeah, thursday they, night yeah, they were right into right into technology and we learned a lot about the things that they were investigating and yeah the learning went both ways it was fantastic yeah and you know we told them what they bought and they brought their kits and they'd come here on the, th on the thursday night and we'd show them how to do stuff then they'd go away and then the next week they'd come back all excited and go i made it work and um yeah, yeah and this was it was great yeah, was measuring great things like uh, air temperature changes and disturbance and humidity and all the things that go bump in the night, they're now equipped to be able to measure those things and quantify what it is that's going on. Mm. So, so far we haven't been able to remake Ghostbusters, but you know, we're, we're getting, getting there. there. We're <laughs> getting there. Did their machines go ping here? This is an 1841 building. They, we, we've got to get them back in to actually stay here overnight. I mean, I'm not willing to stay here overnight, but um, they might want to. So that just sounded fascinating there. What a out there project to, you know, that's definitely not a collaboration that would have sprung to mind very quickly. But it did make me think, where is Hackard Space located? Ah, it's um, St. John's Road in uh, Newtown. And um, of course it leads up, the, it's one of the gatehouses, the two gatehouses that lead up St. John's Road um, to um, an old orphanage uh, right. that has a very tragic history. Um, a lot of that is, is only being sort of discovered now. Um, and Kickstart Arts is just up the road there. Um, oh. And um, beautiful old buildings. But again, they're, um, they're sort of crumbling a bit um, and they need a bit of repair. But again, you know, this is sort of where's the funding for that and so on. So, you know, we do what we can to, to try to you know, keep the roof from falling in on us. Yeah. Wow, it's just amazing to hear about all these things right on our doorstep. So... Mm. Anna, you know, you've done a lot of the legwork for this with the background um, mm. research on the topic and meeting everybody. What would you say is, what have you learned or what's your takeaway? Or? I think what's fascinating for me, and even just with that paranormal investigation, the amount of things that you can do, like you can check the air temperature, you can check <laughs> whatever else they need to do for paranormal investigations, and you can just go in with an idea and be like, you know what, I've always wanted to do this crazy thing like knitting machines they were talking about all sorts of different things and here is a place that you can just go and kind of make your crazy ideas a reality and have people support you the way through it yeah it's very much that um and it, you know you know we pride ourselves on on being um inclusive mm. um whether you're a ghostbuster or, or whether whether you're a you know a, a very introverted person you know we, we want to bring out the best in people if that's what they want if yeah. somebody wants to come in and just be quietly being in the corner and just do their little thing fine do that you know yeah. we're, we're happy to support that mm. that sounds awesome so is there anywhere any upcoming activities where people can find you or are they best to drop in on the thursday open night oh thursday open nights are always always a go um and particularly as the weather gets warmer we often have a barbecue um but um with the national science week coming up we've got a um a big 
display at Festival of Bright Ideas, if you want to come along to that. That's the 10th and 11th of August, I believe. Yes, I think so. Yeah. 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 Um, And that's always been really popular. We've had a lot of people um, sort of get in, just like the paranormal investigators, you know, they sort of first get in touch through that that, um, sort of external um, work that we've done. And are you at Beaker Street as well on the sixteenth and seventeenth? Yeah, we've been we've been involved in um, Beaker Street right from the from the first. You one. make those beautiful um, name tags, don't you? Yeah, the glowing name tags. That was actually my idea. They I'm so are proud fabulous. of that. Yeah, <laughs> I tried to see if I could pikey those <laughs> into true. from Margo. Yeah. I was like, can I have them too? And she's like, no. no. <laughs> well, we can show you how to make your own. Ooh. <laughs> but uh, uh, well, that's yeah. all we've got time for today. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Tanya, for coming in, just being a wealth of knowledge, but also for your exuberant passion for the space because I really think that you've really brought the topic to life for me because sometimes when our team goes out and researches it's really hard for me to get a grasp of really what we're talking about but your enthusiasm really just shines through so thanks so much and for all that you do for the local community as well oh thank you so much for inviting me it's it's been such a pleasure i've had a lovely time here this has been a hoot (laughs) (laughs) and thank you anna for all your work you're scooting off on holiday but we'll see you when you get back for more science and technology goodness that's all we've got time for this week folks thank you so much for listening as always get in touch on social media if you'd like to give us any feedback 